0: This podcast is sponsored by Bailey Gifford. Their podcast series, Short Briefings on Long-Term Thinking, brings you in-depth knowledge and challenging points of view from Bailey Gifford's investment managers. Search online for Bailey Gifford Short Briefings. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Anime Podcast. I'm Ollie Smith, magazine editor here at NMA, and this week I'm here to play you the 20-minute conversation I had recently with Green Party leader John Bartley about ESG investing, green governments, and the relationship both of those things have with wider socioeconomic inequality, and indeed the racism we're seeing protested around the world. It's a wide-ranging conversation, so without further ado here's that chat in full. The first thing I actually wanted to ask you was, was about something topical, I mean really topical, uh, it's happened today actually. <laughs> so so um, um, Mark Carney who you'll be familiar with as the former governor of the Bank of England but now a sort of special envoy on kind of climate change and um, Boris Johnson's advisor for the COP um, climate change conference, he was saying today in a a kind of uh, an online webinar that we were attending um, that the financial services had, had overtaken the government in its sort of forward thinking about climate change, uh, impact investing in particular and I suppose policy too um, and I think from the from the perspective of a journalist covering that, this space we've, we felt that was a sort of watershed moment really but I think also cynically I, you know I still feel so there's a long long way to go particularly with uh, with um kind of fund managers picking which companies to invest in um and i just wanted to get your thoughts on that really um you know in terms of yeah. government catching up perhaps with the private sector
1: what the case is that I mean, yeah yeah i mean it's <laughs> in my opinion the government has been a long way i <laughs> think for a long long time and um it's been very clear over the last two years that with all the litigation that's been going on around the world um, and the potential impact against those who and um, pumped carbon out of the atmosphere, there's that risk, there's the whole issue, sector issue about resilience and ability to withstand and then there's looking ahead and predicting what the future trends are going to be and how every sector of the economy needs to transition and which businesses are going to benefit from that and which businesses aren't and they're going to really, really struggle and you know, we've seen uh, well, you know, there's a big discussion over bailing out the car industry right now that we've seen it even before coronavirus mm. hit, um, partly due to uncertainty around Brexit, uh, the car industry having a real you know, struggle, but there are more structural issues there, you know, North Sea Oil, the government has had not really subsidised that for a long, long time, and in the last few budgets we've seen continual subsidy going on there. Um, of course, the aviation industry has been subsidised hugely. Uh, by government, um, with no tax on aviation fuel right across Europe, um, in fact, uh, for years. Uh, and the you know, massive sectors dependent on fossil fuels have been subsidised to a huge extent. Mm. Uh, and that's clearly not sustainable, um, even more so now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Mark Carney has, has been quite progressive. I think he, he I did a seminar at Bank of England on veganism. <laughs> he yeah, when he back back then just before, he, before he left about uh, a year ago, and uh, he uh, yeah he he's, he's clearly you know um, his his heart is in the right place and but but government is so far behind you know we've known for a long time that it's you know even by its own analysis not on track to meet its fourth and fifth carbon budgets and that's not even taking into account aviation and shipping emissions uh, even in you know the, the budget before. Uh, it's just as we knew coronavirus was hitting and we suspected it to be a massive economic kind of impact. There was just nowhere near uh, kind of the vision um, from, from the Chancellor at that point. Yeah. Uh, and going back in, in the budgets beforehand, there's just the constant you know, £30 billion road-building programme uh, was announced in, in the budget before last. Um, there, there just isn't, isn't the political leadership, there isn't the ambition, there isn't the poor thinking. And of course business needs from government that absolute certainty about the direction that's going to be taken. It needs to know what the framework is going to be, what yeah. time scales are for you know, phasing out cars off the, off the road, possibly um, petrol and diesel cars. It needs to know what subsidies are going to be available. We saw with the solar industry, you know, the last Labour government making it really attractive for people. There's this massive explosion in jobs and procurement mm. from the bottom up, and then suddenly another government comes in, slashes the feed-in tariffs and pulls the rug from under the solar industry. Now, business can't operate like that it needs certainty and it needs clear direction and sure. i'm not surprised that um can't that government is lagging behind it's just, mm. not that leadership. just
0: sticking on the topic of governments a second i i actually spoke to a a fund manager of a, a of a reasonably small kind of uh, emissions fund so um, you know for, for people at home watching this not, not as well versed in, in how that works essentially his job to find companies with competitive emissions reduction strategies and invest in them um, and you know those for the sake of transparency they do include some uh, companies more old school companies in in the energy sector one thing that he said that I thought was kind of eye-catching was that now that we have this uh, potentially quite powerless situation surrounding the government's finances, also, you know, I suppose neoliberal common- economists would have you believe, um, that, and there is this sort of risk or possibility of retrenchment in the government's finances, potential further austerity to balance the book, so to speak. Um, he seemed to be of the opinion that governments were going to shift responsibility on Uh, for emissions reduction to the private sector still further Um, and that the 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 balance would change from kind of subsidies as you mentioned there in the the, you know the solar world to um, you know to mandates and and actual I suppose legal changes and regulatory changes I just wondered what you thought about that and 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 whether that's a kind of realistic um, you know snapshot of what we could expect in the next five years I suppose.
1: I think you know, we had all this talk about unleashing potential, didn't we, in the last election. And mm. you know, if we're going to get the, the speed of change that's needed, it, it's not going to be done from the top down by fear uh, and you know, legislating. Although obviously legislation has a, a crucial role by the framework, but you cannot force uh, people to bring about the change as quickly as it's required. It has to be creating the conditions to unleash. There's that word. No, the, the, the change from the bottom up. And um, when you think about what needs to be done, just let's take one sector, in, in terms of housing, in the massive insulation program that needs to go on, super insulation to cut people's energy bills, but also uh, getting rid of the gas boilers, incentivizing that to happen, and putting in the new renewable systems, which we know we've got to do, or decarbon, um, pumping hydrogen through the heat supply, or whatever it is that government comes up with. Any of that is going to take massive, massive change from the bottom up. Now, when we put in all the central heating systems in, in the 70s, I think the a big explosion. I think there's about 7 million central heating systems put in in that decade. Mm-hmm. It wasn't done from the top down. It was done from the bottom up because you've got to unleash you know, the private sector to get involved, to train people up, mm-hmm. uh, to, to be able to make it happen. Now, the government needs to provide those subsidies for it to be affordable. It needs to provide the legislative framework to make it happen. Uh, but you need to get the economies of scale from procurement you know, at a large level so that costs come down to enable it to happen on that kind of scale. And you can't just force people to do it. It has to be incentivized. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if there's this kind of green austerity that you're talking about, where there is no kind of subsidy from government uh, to make things work, then it just isn't going to happen at the speed that we need it
0: okay i mean just to probe a bit further there i mean the green party has, you know staked its claim to um you know uh, forward thinking and progressive politics with quite a few ideas across the policy spectrum that are you know that are quite centralized um you know the universal basic income this this role of the, the you know the state in society is that changing at all in your mind uh, as a result of the pandemic given what you say about market dynamics and perhaps the importance of, I suppose, governments or the government setting up the right conditions in which things like green energy and, and um, green awareness can
1: thrive? Well, we've always been very pragmatic about it. Um, and we have yeah. you know, very much said that indeed the change needs to come from the bottom up. I think the debate over which industries get bailed out you know, is an interesting one because it brings these things into sharp focus. I mean, right. We know that when things need to happen effectively, the railways have been brought back into public control because they had to be, you know. The state has a really, really important role at times of crisis and emergency to step in and make sure that the changes happen that need to happen and to correct market failures and then things go wrong. Mm. And that's what we've always said. Uh, it's not a kind of big ideological thing that things have to be brought under state control. It's not some communist vision <laughs> of society. Mm. You know, it's very pragmatic. This, these are the steps that need to take. And it's also about accountability uh, and democracy in what needs to take place. Um, but there's, there's a recognition that the private sector and the public sector need to play a role together, uh, mm-hmm. given what the right conditions are, but if anything, you know, you mentioned basic income, that is not a centralized statist uh, approach, that is actually a very empowering approach. What we've said is that if we're going to transition the economy, there's going to be massive change in every industry, and that means a lot of uncertainty and, and potentially precarious work. So we're saying, Let's create two, three million new good green jobs to replace the jobs that are going to go. And let's also have that basic income provide the security for everyone as we mm-hmm. transition because there's going to be a lot of change. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it's now you know, recognized that in a time of emergency crisis like coronavirus, a basic income is of course exactly what we need. And mm-hmm. you know, the old welfare state was set up for a, on a very different set of assumptions. You know, a, a job for life, a male breadwinner, uh, you know, that, that those days are gone. <laughs> and mm. we need to rethink welfare completely and its role. And, you know, the basic income looks like the most simple, transparent uh, way of doing it. You give, you know, that support to everyone and you claw it back through progressive taxation.
0: This podcast is in association with Bailey Gifford. Find out more about their Ranger funds and investment trusts at www.baileygifford.com. I have mean, a couple of questions following on from that. I suppose my first would be, you know, the, this idea you mentioned about, uh, you know, the job for life not being a reality anymore. And and for our readers, the financial advisors, the investment advisors, the wealth managers in, in this world, you know, they know that the concept of retirement is changing and people are living longer and working in different jobs in different sectors. And, and that means as a result that people are going to have to be saving and investing at different times in their life in order to fund whatever they're doing in those different phases of existence, I suppose. Do you, Do you have some sort of uh, hopeful or grand vision of how perhaps green investing could be democratised or, you know, how to, if we're talking in a bottom up approach, how people can be encouraged at a grassroots level to invest in the things that can create a sustainable future?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'll give you a very tangible example of it um, on the the micro level. Um, In where I'm a uh, leader the council in uh, Lambeth, lead the, so lead the opposition of Lambeth Council. Um, there's a project called Brixton Solar, has now become uh, repowering South London. Um, they recognize that in an era of low interest rates, people want to return on their savings. Mm. So people could invest in a community solar project. Uh, solar panels are put on a, a local estate with a big roof, generates clean, cheap energy. Uh, people are invested. Uh, get a return, you know, 3% on their investment. It's not at all bad in this kind of day and age. It's a quite mm-hmm. secure uh, project. Um, the, there's local procurement, local jobs created, uh, and then there's community funds set up to maybe insulate other housing estates and give back to the community. It's a win-win-win right across the board. And if government can set up conditions for those kinds of things to work, uh, then you can have them at, you know, on, on a very large scale. And it's absolute common sense. You know, investors mm-hmm. get a return, get the good stuff happening, um, pension funds are looking for safe places to put their money. Um, mm. We know that you can get crises like this, and this isn't going to be the last crisis, if you believe the scientists. You know, Because of our exploitation of nature, there's a real risk of future viruses. We're seeing increasing extreme weather events. Uh, there is going to be a lot of economic turbulence. And what we need are strong, resilient economies and strong, resilient industries that are going to be able to survive that. And mm. green industry, green innovation, uh, strong local supply chains, resilient local economies, a very good way to deal with that and become a very attractive investment.
0: I mean, in terms of intra- attractive investment, I mean, one thing that we've certainly seen in the data, you know, um, people with their money in ESG funds or impact funds, um, you know, that invest in a different way, they, they've they been really shielded in many in many ways from the worst of the kind of market crash and, the, and a lot of the turbulence that occurred you know, from the end of February through mid-March onwards. Um, You know, how does it feel as a policymaker to sort of feel, you know, a bit proven right here? I mean, you you mentioned earlier about the state stepping in in emergency to help pay people's wages. I mean, that Rishi Sunak's initial, you know, furloughing and and government wage support scheme is an absolutely unprecedented intervention in in, in a peacetime economy. But it's exactly the example that you're talking about. How does that make you feel to sort of see what seem very logical and sensible ideas find their way suddenly into the mainstream of, you know, what others might call, uh, I suppose, conservative or liberal uh, economics?
1: Well, well, there's no value in being proved right. <laughs> you know, we are where we are.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and, you know, I, I could point back to numerous you know, things, you know, 10, 20 years ago, we were talking about air pollution and everyone said, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, now it's right there at the top of the agenda. I remember us arguing for a living wage and people said, it ain't ever going to happen. You know, mm. and, and of course, it's become very, very commonplace in the public sector and um, local councils, private sector too. I mean, the government rebranded the minimum wage to be the living wage. You know, um, climate emergency. You know, we've been banging on for years about, you know, last two years the penny's dropped. But really, who cares? You know, whether you're approved right or not. The question is, we are where we are. My worry is that these things aren't going to stick, and these aren't going to change. And it's very clear that we're we're facing a choice, and we can go. know, to return to failed austerity policies, which, you know, I'm very worried about the signals coming out of government around that. Or we can follow Mm -hmm. another path, which Europe seems to be heading towards about the Green New Deal um, and also the welfare. You know, Spain's just introduced a basic income guarantee for the poorest. Um, That's something that charities in this country are calling for now, uh, particularly with the food bank statistics that came out today from the the Trussell Trust. What this crisis has done, as what many previous crises have done, is lift the lid on a situation that we hadn't properly appreciated or seen. Um, And in this case, it's the rampant inequality. It's the massive use. It's suddenly a load of people being thrown onto statutory sick pay Mm. and realising what a low rate it is, never having had to claim it before or having to go onto universal credit, never realising how long the wait was, what you have to jump through, what a clunky system it is. And actually, there's still a disincentive to work, and that's at a very low rate. And if you can look back, you know, there's the Boer War, the First World War, the Second World War and the, War, and the First World War conscription of other men, working class men going into the military suddenly revealed how um, the health of the working classes was suffering. And that laid yeah. foundations for the National Health Service. Second World yeah. War, male conscription meant that women came into the workforce, and everyone realized that women, of course, could do men's jobs, and there was no going back, and now, the question is now that the lift has been lift, lifted, the genie is out of the bottle. Will we try and go back to a time before, or will we recognise that things uh, were there were terrible injustices that are now out in the open and need to be addressed, and that there is a new way of doing things? And you know, it is all to play for. So whether you were right or not mm. in the past um, really is irrelevant. It, it's what happens now. But you know, the good news is that. People are seeing that business can change and transition very, very quickly. Everyone from, you know, Formula One racing team saying we can adapt to produce ventilators through to restaurants and, and others moving to delivery services. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's suddenly uh, a lot of people realizing they can work from home for the first time um, where it was not thought possible. And, and, you know, we're all doing Zoom meetings. <laughs> you know, it has been a massive push, you know, yeah. for this online working. And in, in one sense, there won't be, a, there's only so much you can go back on. Um, once you've made those steps because people have seen there are new ways of doing things I'm hopeful that because we've seen that direct intervention uh, from the government it does set a precedent for a particular time of crisis to do things differently and of course there is no bigger crisis than the climate emergency
0: yeah uh, just just finally John I mean you mentioned uh, injustice I mean this is some way off our agenda of, sort of discussing green matters, but it would be remiss of me not to mention, you know, what's going on in the States at the moment and, and how that's shedding a light on, I should say, some sort of global inequality and, and injustice, but also kind of, you know, the socioeconomic tensions behind that. Um, what's the relationship in your mind between kind of green politics, a, a new deal and inequality and diversity in our society?
1: Oh, symbiotic. Um, it's the same system that perpetuates and delivers the racism that we're seeing in America. And let's call this isn't just, you know, ethnic inequality. This is racism. Yeah, it's Structural racism. racism. Let's call it what it is. Yeah. Um, it's that same system, which is also perpetuating rampant inequality. Uh, mm-hmm. That is destroying the very ground we walk on in the ecological crisis. That is laying the foundations for future pandemics, The scientists in our exploitation of nature. And that is bringing us you know, to the brink of the potential apocalypse, <laughs> if we're you know, realistic in terms of the climate emergency, if there were, by the way, climate change. If um, we did get this uh, kind of multiplier effect, which we all fear. Um, so you know, that is the system, and the system needs fundamental change. You know? and, and I know we were, we were talking about this well at the London School of Economics in you know, the early 90s that the old economic models. Were already, you know, people realising they were theories, not laws, uh, that they don't always work, mm-hmm. um, that they, you know, it isn't a strict science, uh, and it was based on a very industrial model. You know, you think about, you know, the basic economics of the circular supply of income, you know, with the injectors and the withdrawers. Um, mm-hmm. It's a very industrial model. Now there are other economists that have been you know, sounding alarm for a long, long time and saying actually you need to think a more organic approach to. Uh, politics and you know, let's get away from the monetarism versus Keynes, Keynesianism dichotomy and let's rethink um, uh, economics completely in the round uh, and looking at you know, us being in a sense uh, working with the natural world rather than against it uh, and there are a lot of forward thinkers and I think you know they are the ones that are going to be setting the path to the future sooner or later and I hope that it's sooner.
0: Hey look I mean what a fascinating uh what a fascinating set of answers if I may I'm just going to finish by saying that I think um it'd be really great John to um to do another chat in, in maybe in a, in a month or so and get um uh, uh, a contact of mine Tom McPhail who's a um a now former sort of pensions and retirement lobbyist who's just gone over to do communications for um uh, a distributor of e-bikes, and he's a hugely passionate kind of commuter. He loves his um, his Brompton bike, and um, he, he's turning his sort of communication powers to the good. And I think it would be an amazing conversation to to have between the three of us, where perhaps you could uh, you could school him, and he could give he could put some meat on the on the policy bone too. I'd, would you be up for that? I don't think
1: I can school anyone, but yeah, I'm <laughs> very happy to learn. Okay. I think we're all learning together, are we? And I, I'm, I'm loving these conversations because I'm I'm learning so much from all these people. But yes, I'd love
0: to. Cool. Well, hey, look, I'll let you go. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, been an absolute pleasure. Um, I'll hopefully be in touch in the future and perhaps we can talk again soon. Yeah,
1: anytime, William.
0: Okay. Thanks so much, John. Cheers. Take care.